right, church, we're going we're gonna to transition this morning. Uh, we've been in a series titled this, Greatest Hits. And uh, this has been a series based on uh, our favorites from the scriptures. And, I, and as I promised, we have a variety of voices in the coming weeks, especially, that are going to be coming up here and sharing some of their favorites. But you got me again this week, so I get to be selfish in uh, getting to share some of my favorites from the scriptures in this series. But... Um, Here's what I know is, is, once again, everybody's greatest hits album looks, looks differently. And everybody uh, chooses their favorite songs that would be on their greatest hits album from all different perspectives. And for me, when I think of the greatest hits or the greatest stories in the Bible, uh, I can't help but to think of stories in parts of the Bible that have literally shaped the way I think about Scripture, that I think about Jesus, that have set the stage for me to say, I didn't understand this aspect of faith or why we do what we do in church, but this helps me understand the why behind the what. I'm going to start us off this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, very famous uh, Christian author. If you're a fan of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he is the author, provided not only uh, a lot of great nonfiction, but fiction uh, literature to the Christian community. But I love this quote by C.S. Lewis as we begin. He, he says this, he says, There exists in every church something that sooner or later works against the very purpose for which it came into existence. So we must strive very hard by the grace of God to keep the church focused on the mission that Christ originally gave it. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis because it's like, we got to take a protective posture around why the church does what it does, but there's going to be temptations for us to constantly be distracted, to not actually participate in why the church exists in the first place. So this morning, uh, the section of scripture that we're going to be talking about is none other than one of my favorite topics in the scripture called the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission. Now, um, the Great Commission, what is the Great Commission? Because that's a very like Christianese type of uh, phrase. The Great Commission is basically... What Jesus told his church to do right before he uh, left and right before he was exalted and right before he left us to be uh, sitting at the throne, the right hand of the throne of God. And this is massive for us, the implications for us as the church. And the last three verses of Matthew's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus uh, really center around this idea of the Great Commission. So we're going to look at this really quick, and then we're going to really dive deep and break this down together this morning. So Matthew chapter 28, the last three verses of Matthew's eyewitness account of Jesus' life. This is what Jesus had to say. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray together this morning before we continue. Lord, we, um, we come before you as your church. And Lord, we don't take a posture this morning of saying, we just we take what we want to take. And we just kind of leave behind what we want to leave behind. But we want to be a church that takes um, your word serious. And we want to take the mission that you've set out for your church serious. So, Lord, help shape us. Lord, help us have maybe an open mind this morning. I know even for myself, I have so many traditions when it comes to my faith. But, Lord, would, would every tradition that maybe we've been grown into um, would we hold with an open hand this morning because the, the tradition we most want to be loyal to is you, Lord. You're the reason why we're here. You, you, 
you're, you're the center of our lives. You're the center of our community. So we want to take your direction, your mission, your focus with utmost seriousness, yet obedience and joy. So, Lord, help peel back the onion of our lives this morning in the ways that we need to embrace the why behind the what this morning. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Well, this morning, uh, the key word that I feel like to set the stage in understanding Jesus' mission in Matthew 28, the great co- commission, and I love that, it's a commission, meaning that it's a commission, that we have the opportunity as imperfect human beings to partner with the resurrected Jesus in this mission and vision he has for the world that his church would participate in and execute. But I think the key word that we need to come to grips with this morning that is in the Great Commission is this word, disciple. What is a disciple? I think disciple is a Christianese word that gets thrown out there many times that if we were to ask just the everyday Joe Christian, or just like, what is a disciple? We would get hundreds of different answers and perspectives. What does this word disciple mean? Because if that's what Jesus is commissioning his church and has an expectation of his church to participate in, we better have a clear kind of definition of understanding what is a disciple and what does that mean? Many times a disciple represents this kind of pupil or apprentice type of relationship, but even with that type of a definition that we can understand in our Western culture when it comes to mentors and pupils and apprentices, what does this look like in the way that Jesus defines it? And luckily for us, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, this eyewitness account, we get to the last three verses, but Jesus has really set the stage to help us understand how to define some of these words that he's talking about. So 24 chapters earlier, I would argue we have an, a beautiful and amazing revelation of the way Jesus thinks about what a disciple is. So we're going to turn there to Matthew chapter 4. I'll say this, if you don't have your Bibles this morning, no worries. All the scripture is going to be up on the screen, so you can follow along. But in Matthew four, chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, it's interesting. This God-man Jesus, right, is, is, is walking on the earth, and, and here's clues us into the types of things that he participated in, but it says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. So we have the stage being set, normal Joe Schmoes, you know, hanging out, doing their fisherman thing, and Jesus interacts with them, and this is the interaction he has with them. He says this, verse 19, come follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And we see the response to this. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And I think for us, this presents and creates an opportunity for us to understand what a disciple is. What was Jesus expecting for people, his church, to execute in the world in what he modeled in his own life. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I want to just break this down and for us to come up with a very simple understanding so we can get on the same page of what is the aim here and what is a disciple in terms of the way it's defined in this section of Scripture. So here we have, number one is this, is a disciple is someone who is following Jesus. Come follow me, Jesus says to these men, right? 
So that helps us understand a disciple is someone who is following Jesus. But here's what's interesting about this verse is, did you know perfection is not required to follow Jesus? We are a church that believes wholeheartedly that you belong before you believe. That's the posture we take. Because we see it in the scripture. We see these guys who didn't have a perfect theology, actually had no idea the capacity of who Jesus was, being given the opportunity to follow him and not being rebuked because they didn't fully understand who he was. Up on the screen on the next slide. Is it required of you to proclaim that Jesus is Lord to be his follower? I would argue, based on the example of Scripture, there is a resounding no. Did you know you can be a follower of Jesus before you've worked out and unraveled the idea of proclaiming him to be Lord? Peter, guess the first time that Peter proclaims Jesus to be Lord? It's not for several chapters later. But he's agreed to drop his nets, investigate, and follow this guy who's claiming to be someone. Someone important in the middle of human history. And I'll just say this. This is the posture we take as a church. We want you to follow Jesus, and we want you to investigate your faith. And not be, no shame be placed on you or judgment as you're working out and teasing out your faith. Because this is a massive decision of following Jesus. And I'll say this, has implications for how you live the rest of your life. It's better to count the cost on the front end so when you radically invite Jesus and his kingdom in, his li- in your life, you know the cost of what your life is going to look like on the other side. But it's amazing how often we require people to believe before they belong. But that is not the posture in which Jesus takes as he invites people to follow him. They don't proclaim him to be Lord for several chapters later. They're just trying to follow this guy and figure him out. For some of you in the room... That's, that's your encouragement this morning. You're like, I don't know if Jesus is Lord. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Start following him. Follow him. Start investigating. What are the circumstances around the, the, the resurrection of Jesus? Because the bottom line is, if Jesus did not resurrect from the grave, there's no point in following him. So if we don't even understand the circumstances surrounding that one event that all of Christianity is based off of, what's the point? So I would encourage you, tease the things out you need to tease out as you follow him. But here's the beautiful thing as we continue in our definition. Is that, number two, a disciple is changed by Jesus. Because when you start following Jesus, what happens is he takes a posture. He makes this promise. He says, I will. I will. He's making a promise to you and I in our human capacity that he's going to do something if we choose to follow him. If we choose to be obedient to his recommendations, his way of life, he's promising to intervene in a supernatural way in our very natural human capacity. The question becomes, do you want to grow? Because he's ready. He's ready to teach you. But do you want to grow? See, this is where the ball gets kind of in your court because a disciple is changed by Jesus, but in order to be changed by Jesus, you got to be willing to submit under his authority, under the way that he views life, under the way that he views the church. 
under the way that he views authority. See, in order for us to be changed by Jesus, we have to position ourselves in a place of saying, Jesus, I'm willing to let you change me because I know you've promised to actually do that. On the next slide, say this. is The best antidote to hypocrisy is humility and transformation. We get a lot of people that accuse faith-type people to be hypocrites. And here's, I'll be the first one to say, they're absolutely right. But the antidote to that being the label the church leads with is people who take a posture of humility and then people who take a posture of being transformed by Jesus. If you're on a trajectory of transformation, guess what? All the Christian people who are aware of your double life are going to start seeing change and transformation. And they're going to say, you know what? There seems to be some sort of a trajectory where Jesus has actually made a real-life impact. I think that one of the biggest problems of the church is that we believe people who aren't in the church are absolute idiots. When we're like, I have the Jesus bumper sticker and t-shirt, and our lives are showing no trajectory towards change. If Jesus ain't making a change, he ain't real. Why would we believe him? See, but that requires us to say, Jesus, I submit to your lordship, and you will change me. If you're a hypocrite in the house, 100% of us are. Are we taking a posture of humility, and are we taking a posture of saying, God, you will transform me. I'm willing to be transformed by your power, your perspective, your lordship, but it takes a submission posture on our part. You know what the difference between an unhealthy and a toxic person are? An unhealthy person's willing to grow. Toxic people are allergic to growth. And that's my thing. I just, I just truly believe this. We have a lot of Christians who execute arrogance and say, I've seen it all before, and believe that they, they're know-it-alls rather than learn-it-alls. As a church, my prayer is that we would be learn-it-alls. Saying this, we know in every season there's something to learn from Jesus and his lordship and his perspective. When we hit the moment where we believe we've arrived and we're know-it-alls, we have missed it. And our self-righteousness has got us into a very religious situation that, I'll just be honest, is going to repel everybody. we got to be willing to be changed by Jesus, and we got to be willing to be people that say, I know in this season, it's time to continue to grow. Are we toxic? Are we allergic to growth? Are we willing to admit we are broken people, unhealthy, that see a trajectory towards health and crave it and know Jesus can lead us there? But it's only him and our posture we take under him. So a disciple is changed by Jesus. And lastly, in our definition that's found in Matthew 4.19, says, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will. What is he going to do? He's going to send us out to fish for people. So it's this. A disciple is committed to the mission of Jesus, which, let me remind you, is all about people. It's about the people on your left, your right this morning. It's about every person in our community that's not included in the church family we're gathering together right now. It's other churches. Every breathing human being that, by the way, has been created in the image of God is the bread and butter of how Jesus has chosen to carry his mission forward. The best resource in God's kingdom isn't the resources and the silver bullets we convince ourselves with. It's living, breathing human beings created in the image of God who submit themselves under Jesus' lordship, his rule, 
in his reign, it's all about relationships. It's all about learning and becoming an expert lover of others. And I'll put this phrase up on the screen, which I've shared before, but I think a lot of a lot of our perspective in terms of lovers of people have some obstacles. And there's this perspective that I have bought into is that as a person, when it comes to being becoming a lover of other persons, we can either come from the perspective of everything is an obstacle or everything is an opportunity. I'll say this. The church has played culture wars for too long to act like the current state of our nation and world is an obstacle. Jesus refuses for us to submit under that yoke and say, actually, it creates a massive opportunity. There is an opportunity right now. But here's what's difficult is that it's easy for us to be people that say everything's an obstacle versus saying I'm going to use every opportunity to become the best fisher of men. How many of you guys understand and know and realize we live in 2019 where we have sociological studies, psychological studies, where it helps us be resourced in understanding how people work. We are more resourced to understand how to be the best fit as fishers of men, lovers of people, people that chase after people in relationship, invite them, be inclusive, love on them, have authentic relationship, but it's so easy for us to complain and just stop when there's an obstacle. But Jesus has a bigger vision for us to find every opportunity to understand that the best fisher of men that I can become is limited by what this person decides to do. That we look in the mirror in every day and say, do I look and lead my life with an obstacle or do I lead it with an opportunity knowing that 2019, what a time to be alive. Kanye West just dropped a gospel album for goodness sakes. And if you didn't know, now you know. We live in a time right now where we can complain. But what I'm seeing is early showings of God doing something amazing where people have said, I'm done complaining about the obstacles. And I'm using this as an opportunity to lead my life as I follow Jesus and love and become a fisher of as many people as possible. Rich Wilkerson, Jr., Said, said a quote, which that'll be, it's up on the previous slide. It says this, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. We can be the victim. But I'll say this, 10%. There's not stats to back this up necessarily, but I think this is helpful. We are victims of our culture. We're victims in our experience. But it's less about being the victim and it's 90% about how you respond. Not 100%. Let's, let's be in touch with real life. But life is literally 90% about how you respond. Is it an obstacle or an opportunity? I'm just going to say you're going to be miserable if everything's an obstacle. Because you're responding in a way that helps no one. The church has been really good at this. Let's stop being so good at this. And let's see the opportunity before us to put the onus on our shoulders of saying God has called us to be the best fishers of men. So what are we doing with the opportunity in 2019 today? Are we taking advantage of it or are we just sitting back and complaining about the obstacles? That's so easy. But the church, the, vi the vision that God has for his church is so much greater. So here we go. Here's our biblical definition of disciple based on Matthew 4.19. I think this is helpful for us to define before we go any further. A biblical definition of disciple is someone who is following Jesus, as we talked about, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. It's a disciple. 
somebody's following, being changed, Jesus is actually having an effect on your life, and you're committed to being the best fisher of men. You're committed to loving people fervently, chasing after them, letting the love of Jesus not be an idea, but to permeate from your mind, your heart, to your feet, and for you to repeat that over and over and over and over again. This is the definition that we're submitting to as a church. If you're a part of our church leadership and our disciple-making cohort, you know this is what we lead with. Like, before we do anything, like, we got to define what a disciple is. What are we making here? I say it often. McDonald's makes hamburgers. Ford makes cars. What does the church make? Disciples! But as C.S. Lewis alluded to earlier, we can get so distracted that that just becomes not the focal point or the mission. We can't be distracted by other things at the expense of what Jesus has called his church to do. So let's go back to the scripture. Here it is. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we understand what disciples are, but now we're getting into this idea with God's mission of, well, what does making disciples actually look like? What does it mean to make disciples? Because, like, if that's the aim, like, as a church, we should constantly be investing in and thinking about how do you and I become better and more mature disciple makers? What does that look like for us? So, once again, I think we need to have a reference point that's biblical that helps us and simply understand the ideas of what we're aiming and what we're talking about here. And I think Matthew 28 in these scriptures helps us unlock this. So on the next slide here, there's this idea of going and making disciples that I think helps us understand what is, it, what is disciple making. Well, disciple making includes this. It includes help, meaning that God invites us into his Godly, heavenly, profound, eternal implication type mission on the earth. And he wants us to help. I love the word help. It's like a love-based type of word. I don't know about you, but I want to be helpful towards people. That's what Jesus is like. I want you to go and be helpful. Make disciples. Create the type of person that will actually contribute in a helpful way as we live life as human beings on this earth. It's rooted in a place of help. Next, disciple-making includes trust. I love that, baptizing, baptism. We as a church, every so often, we baptize people, water baptize people, right? See, this is one of the commands of Jesus, but in order for people to, like, get up in front of people, get dunked underwater, saying, like, my old life is gone, my new life has begun, that takes a trust level. we got to trust in this God. There's a level of trust in disciple-making, of trusting God, putting our faith in Him. Once again, having heart change towards the idea of God and who He is in relationship to my life. Next, disciple-making includes following. We're already kind of banging the drum on this one, but obviously it's repeated again. He says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. See, we got we to gotta teach people to follow this Jesus, or we got to learn 
in our own ways what it means to follow Jesus and what obedience and what it looks like for a renovation in progress to continue to progress in its renovation type jobs. What does this look like for us? Well, it requires us to be obedient and following him and what he says, once again, about the world and the life that we live. And then lastly, disciple making includes Jesus. He's like, I'm going to be with you. Not in the same capacity I've been with you walking on the earth. Holy God, holy man. He's like, I'm going to take my residence on the throne of God. And I'm going to empower you with my spirit, which isn't limited geographically. But my spirit's going to live within you as human beings. Now, how are you going to steward that power? How are you going to steward that vision that I'm giving to you? Well, church, that's going to be up to you and how you position yourself and execute it. But Jesus is like, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm ascending, but I'm multiplying myself throughout the earth in a way that functions through human relationship. The mission for Jesus is disciple-making. That's his mission. That's the mission before he ascended, sent his church, us, on before he left. And up on the screen on the next slide, we've now hopefully created some really simple biblical definitions of disciple-making. So disciple-making, here's how we're defining it based on what Jesus told us to do is it's help, disciple making is helping people to trust and follow Jesus. There it is. Help, trust, follow Jesus. Those four main ideas. That's what it is. How do you make this up? You help people to follow and, and, and trust Jesus. So what is a disciple maker? Well, it's a Christian who enters into relationships with people to do what? Help them trust and follow Jesus. See, this is everything. This is what Jesus has commissioned his church to do. The church exists to make disciple makers. Sounds like a lot of work. It is. Sounds like a pretty chaotic, confusing, messy, human being type situation. It is, right? But this is why the church exists. This is the mission in which Jesus has called us to. And I just want to remind us again, C.S. Lewis, let's bring up that same quote we began with. I think it's sobering. He said, there exists in every church something that sooner or later works against the very purpose for which it came into existence. So we must strive very hard by the grace of God to keep the church focused on the mission that Christ originally gave to it. To make Disciple makers. I'll just say this. We as a church, we don't budge on this. I don't budge on this. This isn't up for grabs. Jesus' mission, the why behind the what, of why we're here this morning, the trajectory that Jesus is calling and commissioning us to be is to grow in maturity as disciple makers. But what does that look like for you and I? So this morning, Here's what I'll say and how this infiltrates everything that we do is we don't budge on this, meaning we don't budge on our church perspective, how we think about church and the implications of what Jesus was commissioning his church to do. Up on the screen, two words that I think help us, and I've shared this before, is our perspective is church isn't a cruise ship, but it's an aircraft carrier. 
What is a cruise ship? We know. If you've ever been on a cruise, you go, you attend, you're entertained. There's unlimited amounts of food and buffets. There's entertainment. There's great child care. You name it, a cruise ship has all sorts of things to offer. You come, you see, you're entertained. But I'll just say this. This is not how we think about church in relationship to the why behind the what to make disciple makers. Because rather than viewing church as a cruise ship, we are an aircraft carrier. What's the purpose of an aircraft carrier? It's positioned in a body of water to send planes into places it otherwise couldn't go collectively on its own. But here's the deal. There still needs to be a sustaining amount of energy to allow the aircraft carrier to function. You still got to put in work. You still got to refuel planes. You still got to make sure the thing doesn't sink. But its main purpose is to launch people into the places the collective church within the four walls isn't able to get to. We are an aircraft carrier because we have been commissioned to make disciple makers. We have been commissioned to not come to entertain. I am not here to entertain you. We are going to try to make sure our kids' ministry is the best. But guess what? That's not the purpose of why it exists. It exists as something we can use to invest in your kids so that you have time to be invested in yourself, to be the best disciple maker you can be while you're stewarding your life on this earth. We are going to try to make things great, but it's not going to threaten disciple making. It's not going to threaten where the church has the capability of launching people into places in our community. Jesus in Ephesians, he reminds us that Literally, we are his church, the fullness of himself, to fill everything in every way. We can't fill everything in every way as long as it's just come, come, cruise ship, entertainment, so on and so forth. That sounds like the mission of God has been strong-armed and is in a chokehold. We are an aircraft carrier type of church. When you're here, we're investing to send you out. As has already been alluded to by our prayers earlier, sometimes that's to a different, different geography. Sometimes that's to your workplace. Sometimes that's actually in the rhythms of your life outside of the two hours you spend here that God wants to get a hold of. Say, I'm sending you. And in fact, you've already been sent. So what are you doing with the life you live every other part of the week? Let's say this. Is church just compartmentalized to this event on Sunday? Because my prayer as a pastor is we just keep closing the gap on a life of church and then the everyday life. Because both of those are things that are supposed to be one in the same. We are a 24-7 type of church. Because we understand that's where the mission is at. And for anyone that tries to live a life contrary, people that aren't a part of church are pointing and laughing and saying, you think I'm going to buy into this? People aren't idiots. So if you're buying into the religiousness that sometimes is a byproduct of church, it's time to sober up and understand people see your life. Stop hurting and start helping the mission move forward because we are an aircraft carrier built to serve and to send people into places we couldn't normally corporately go. So we don't budge on this. This is why we don't budge on our perspective of pastors. I'll just say this. Everyone has a different expectation on this guy right here. Good or bad, everybody has an expectation on what I'm going to do with my time. 
what our staff is going to do with our time. But I'll just say this, I'm not a sage from the stage. Some of some church people have an expectation that I'm a stage from the stage. Meaning this is that you attend, I know everything, I'm a guru, just f- I'm going to feed you, feed, feed, eat, eat. The problem is when you just feed and you eat, you become a Christian couch potato. And you never feed anybody else. Maybe the point, as I would say, rather than a sage from the stage or the guide from the side, is we're going to do life together. And rather than a posture of an expert, I'm going to say, I'm not. But we're going to figure this out together. We're going to live and do life together. And I'm going to help be a guide so that when you're fed, it's for the purpose of having energy to go feed somebody else. We don't budge. Because Jesus has commissioned us to make disciple makers. So I get it. The expectations on maybe me, the church staff, it's like, well, they're expected to do everything. Provide all the out. Provide. I would say... Let those expectations die a little bit. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not called to be a sage from the stage, but as the Bible says in Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Rather, it's for you to be a disciple maker yourself so that human relationship becomes the vehicle for us to be the church. This is, we don't budge on this. And, and lastly, we don't budge on our perspective of disciple making, meaning this. Callie mentioned this several weeks ago in one of her messages, and I thought this was, I'm just going to take this with me the rest of my life, is that we teach people more to follow sometimes rules than we do how to think. As a church, when we disciple make, we want to teach people how to think, not to follow rules. Following rules is easy, because the moment you don't follow the rule I gave you, it becomes my fault so easily. Right? We don't own rules. Like, well, pastor told me to follow the rule. No. We don't, that's surface. We want you to go deep. Why in your own Christian faith and obedience to Jesus do you think the rule exists, maybe? Or why, at the heart of this, is maybe a recommendation being placed? We want to help you think about what it means to think about the world. We want you to build principles in your life and how you see the the world rather than following a list of rules. Rules are so easy. People just want to be told what to do. I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to help you understand how to think as a person in their own spiritual two feet that can stand up in our culture in 2019 and help people understand, yeah, the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. And if you're not buying into that, there's no reason for you to be a follower of Jesus. But if you want to investigate that, we will help you. Right? That's how we think about it, not follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. He's good. And I expect you to follow him because it's a rule and it's good. And everybody's like, I don't want to follow a bunch of rules by angry people. Why? Why do we do what we do? We want to create disciple makers who know how to think on their own two feet. Because when you think on your own two feet as a disciple maker, you can make disciples yourself and continue the mission forward. See, we live deployed, but we also live in common. I love Acts chapter 2 because we've got some bullet points here. Acts chapter 2 is like the, the like, the church has just begun, and the church begins to be like represented by these like behaviors. Like if we're like, okay, like we want to be the most like accurate version of the biblical church, this is like the chapter that people turn to. It's like what were the behaviors of the early church? You know what I love about this? Is look at some of these behaviors that the early church was behaving in. It says this, they met daily. They broke bread together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to those in need. 
why am I, uh, am I saying this? Is Because we've got to understand, who are they? They, 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 they. Who are they in the early church? Was it the institution and the pastor? Was it like just the top? Was it just the leaders and the elders? No. It's the person. The community represented by individuals were doing life together. And they were doing it in such a way to and for one another. The pastor wasn't, the institution wasn't providing what they needed to do. See, this wasn't an institution, institution, institution doing something to and for its members. This was people called by God, standing on their own two feet, convicted by God, taking care of one another, living such in a way as a family. See, it's easier for pastors to say, here's the rules. Do it. It's harder for us to say, how do I own the fact that Jesus lives within me and is calling me to be generous? It's, I see a need in somebody I have a relationship in my community, and I'm going to actually solve that need without pastor's permission. That's it. That's everything. That's how you live as a family. That's why the vision of our church is family matters. We're, we're chasing after this. Where it's not a bunch of rules on a page, but it's literally, what does it look like for us to live and think and what it means to be the family of God and the communication that creates towards the world that we live in and how we live as a family. This is why our motto, many times we proclaim this, is be the church, not a building. we got to be the church. When you're the church, it's not just two hours on a Sunday in the four walls. It infiltrates every aspect of our lives, your friendships, your job. It has implications for everything because that's, where the aircraft carrier has sent each and every one of us to be faith-filled people, and God's constantly wanting us to close the gap in the ways that we've separated church life and everyday life. So Jesus had a vision for world activism. This is why this is one of my favorite scriptures. It sets the stage for everything else. It creates the foundation of why we do church, right? And I'll say this is, we live in a time where everyone is an activist for something, <laughs> Can I get an amen, right? Everyone's an activist. Everybody's like, I, I got something I'm passionate about. I'm an activist for this, for that. And we lead with our activism. It's like when you think of that person, you're like, oh, this person is an activist for this. We label ourselves because we go so hard. Everybody's an activist. You know what people are activists for when you scroll through your Facebook, when you have five conversations and it always swings back to one issue. We all live in this culture where everyone is an activist for something. But this morning, I want us to grasp and take away, if anything, is Jesus was an activist for discipleship. Does Jesus care about the Me Too movement? Yes. Does Jesus care about some of the tensions that we're feeling racially in our country? Yes. Absolutely. You can name every issue. But I would say this. They're all like fingers that are connected to a hand. And that hand is disciple making. Saying, you don't win battles with people in relationship by screaming at them on Facebook. You win battles with people by getting face to face with them. Investing personally in their life. You don't win battles as a family by just getting obsessed with the numbers. You win battles when you're hearing stories of wins and transformation in real, everyday lives with human beings. Jesus spoke to the crowds, but you know where he spent a lot of his time? With 12 guys. And then he spent 
an immense amount of time with three of those guys in particular. See, Jesus modeled something in terms of human relationship that we as a church, we're, we're, we're fighting for. Is that the best investment you can make is when you invest in a few people. I could ask you in one minute to write down the top five sermons that have impacted your life. And I'll be honest, it's going to take you a while. But I could ask you also write the five most impactful moments in your life that had to do with people that impacted you. And that's going to come a lot quicker. I cannot let the mission be threatened. And I'll end on this. The great Grant Skeldon said this as an author. It's time we make the commission great again. It's time the church makes the commission great again. Because it's the hand. So many different fingers are represented, but this is what Jesus leads with. A commission to go into all the world. Where is this? In your lordship orientation towards Jesus. Because it's time the church makes the commission great again. Let's pray this morning.